Shabbat Shalom and greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. I am blessed to be here and blessed that you are tuning in on this Kadosh, this holy, holy Sabbath. Greet one another in the chat and remember you can always connect with us seven days a week at TorahToTheTribes.com forward slash connect. We have got our um, Zoom groups, of course, Our most popular is Shabbat Fellowship, 9 o'clock in the morning, Pacific Standard Time, where you can gather with your coffee, your breakfast, and visit with one another and talk about all things biblical, review the previous week's teaching, and just connect with people and find people, hopefully, in your local area. Remember, we do have the Moedim, the feasts upcoming. Of course, our next Moed is the Passover, and make plans for that. You can find the calendar on the Connect page as well. And also, thank you so much, all of you that do give so generously to the ministry and your support. You can always look in the description below and text to the ministry or go to torahtothetribes.com forward slash donate and or giving, I think it is. Anyway, navigate the website, enjoy the teachings, and let's delve into Yeshayahu, Isaiah, and we're in the fifth chapter today, Isaiah, the Hebrew gospel, the Hebrew gospel of Isaiah. This is the fifth gospel, and we are in chapter five. Of course, we'll be very familiar with this type of parable, this type of teaching from the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament. We're Testament. We're talking about vines. We're talking about groves. We are talking about what kind of fruit is produced. And how do we get there today? Through a song. The Hebrew word for a song is to shear, to sing. Now, what happens here is really interesting to just to kind of set you up. I spoke about this a little bit last week. The prophet appears in the guise of a minstrel before this assemblage of his countrymen, okay? And he proceeds to um, recite this really bad experience of a friend of his with um, his vineyard. And this is how it begins. Now, I will share, I will sing to my beloved, a share, a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fortified it in and removed the stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press in it. And he looked, and it should bring forth grapes, but instead it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Yerushalayim and men of Yehuda, please judge between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why, when I looked for grapes, it brought forth only wild grapes. And now I will tell you what I will do 
to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge of it, and it shall be eaten up. I shall break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned, nor dug, but there shall come up weeds and thorn bushes. I will also command the clouds that they do not rain upon it. For the vineyard of Yahweh Savot is Beit Israel, and the men of Yehuda his pleasant plant. He looked for Mishpat judgment, but found oppression. For Zadokah righteousness, but found weeping. This is quite poignant. I mean, look at the power here in this way now that Yeshayahu Isaiah sets the people up. The song, it really, to start with, it disarms the suspicious in the crowd. Imagine, okay? This is, this is planting season, okay? Or, excuse me, this is, this is the time of the harvest, not planting season, the time of the harvest, okay? And there would be a crowd coming to smash the grapes because they would bring in minstrels that would sing and then they would stomp the grapes, grapes, and it would be a party atmosphere. It would be a, a celebrationary atmosphere, taking away the drudgery of just stomping grapes. They would do it to music, to song. And what would happen is there would be a particular minstrel that would come, and it would be like the top 40, right? And they would sing a particular dirge or song that year, and that would become the popular song of the harvest. And that minstrel would then go around to another vineyard. And then that would be the popular song that they had never heard before that became the cultural song, like where our music, popular music comes today. It was the pop hit, if you would. And so this is how he is now going to use that kind of framework to be able to slip in his message. So you have to realize that today, S.A. Tan cannot come up with anything original. He has to counterfeit righteousness and truth. Yahweh is using the prophet Isaiah here to be able to convey a message to the people subtly by slipping it in through music. So you had better be careful today to what you listen to in the music industry because it is planning and planting something in your mind. When I was uh, in my 20s, you know, rap came out and Snoop Dogg and all of that, and you'd be, I'd be listening to it. I wasn't a believer. And the next thing you know, I'm in my little Renault 5, zipping around London, and I'm no longer sitting like this. All of a sudden, I'm kind of like found myself like back like this, and I'm like this, and I've got to sit, you know? And it was like, what happened? Okay? The music. And the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're doing all kinds of evil. Because it's programming. And they program you through the music. Yahweh is not programming through Isaiah. Because Yahweh is righteous and decent and honest. But what he is trying to do is showing you the power of song. The power of song. What we listen to. So here, the song, the sheer, it disarms the suspicions of the crowd. And the minstrel, having now secured their sympathy, 
demands a verdict on the course which the man might be expected to pursue. Well, what should he do now that he's discovered this with his vineyard? Well, what course of action should he take, people? And now they've been brought into the song by the emotion of it. They feel comfortable. They don't feel threatened. You see, and this is what they do with the music industry today. Because S.A. Tan has taken this and they have birthed ACDC and all of that satanic occult stuff because Yahweh uses it for righteousness. Satan can have no original thought. He cannot create. He can only copy and mimic and magnify using imagery. And this is a great way of imagery, is it not? Here, to cause people to repent. Conversely, Satan to cause people to walk and fall into sin. And music is the gateway. I know. I just gave you an example of me in my early 20s. Okay, and then the cigarette leads to something else, right? Because now you're in the music. Because they were all doing that too, right? And so then you put yourself in a more um, dangerous situation, trying to, you know, discover these, these things that are in these music videos or immorality. And that's exactly what S.A. Tan is trying to convey through music because the power and the subtlety, but first of all, have to disarm you and make you feel comfortable so that you can receive and be a receptor. So we have to be very guarded on what we listen to. We should be listening to things that are educating us, that are inspiring us, that are edifying and uplifting, empowering. We should be learning. We have so much available. We can listen to audio books. We can, we can listen to a book while we're at the gym. It could be something from a hundred years ago. It could be something... You can educate yourself. There's so much that you can do. You have to look for it and you have to know what it is that you want to specifically study. But that's what I do. And I listen to things that are uplifting. Do I stumble and, and fall at times? Yes. And my children are so wonderful to be able to see that and go, oh, Papa, right? Because they have been raised without that. So what happens here is the disarmament of the people so they can receive the song of the minstrel. Now he's secured the people's sympathy. He now demands a verdict on the course which may be expected. Well, how shall this man now get his vineyard to produce? What course of action must he pursue with such a stiff-necked and unmanageable vineyard? And that's what you see in verse 3. Now, the answer is so obvious that the people had practically practically assented to their own condemnation before realizing that it's actually about them. And that's what's so amazing about this. The sheer, the song sets them up so that they're practically assent to what actually is going to be their own condemnation. That's some powerful logic that Yahweh is using here through the prophet Isaiah. They've actually already agreed 
to what the condemnation should be, should be before clearly perceiving the actual drift of what the song was about. And this is exactly what Yahusha employed in Matthew chapter 21. And you can read it in your own time. I'll give you a few verses. Matthew chapter 21, verse 41. They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits of their seasons. That's a very important word, render. I won't get into it today because that could lead me down a another pathway. But from this point onwards, the parable becomes more and more transparent because now he's set them up. And at last, the prophet, he throws off all disguise. He unmasks, uncloaks himself, and he drives home the lesson of the whole meaning with these crashing lines that you find in verse 7. For the vineyard of Yahweh Sevot is you, the house of Israel, and the men of Yehuda, his pleasant plant. And he looked for Mishpat judgment, but he found oppression. For Zadokah, he looked for righteousness, but he found weeping. So now he says, it's you. This is very similar about how Nathan the prophet approach David. You're the man, right? So you see, you see how Nathan did this too? Isaiah did it? Is that's what you do. If you want to minister to people, is you need to touch them. You need to let them feel comfortable, not threatened. And then when you are able to do that, people are receptive to the righteousness, and to be convicted. That's what it is. It's a conviction. Oh, my goodness. Look at the filth of these hands. Look at the filth of my... You're right. Look at me. I'm a filthy sinner. I repent of my sins. And this is, this is, this is exactly what happens with this kind of dialogue and it's so powerful so powerful so from this point forward the parable comes more and more um, transparent and then he just unveils uncloaks himself with these crashing lines that you see in verse 7 now again the whole backdrop which is often lost if you just jump into the text is that the minstrels would travel from vineyard to vineyard, from farm to farm during the harvest season. Servants would tread grapes and the musicians would play the flute and their instruments and they would sing ballads, you know. And this turned the drudgery of stomping out the grapes into a dance, into something of like, oh, I want to go and join in. And then they would get the labor, and then they would put on a spread of food, and it would be, a, it would be like a barn dance, would it not? 
most probably that's where we got our barn dances from. But just like today then, like I said, the latest love song, right, would pass from vineyard to vineyard, from farm to farm, and it would become the popular ballad, the popular song of the year, and it would be upon everybody's lips. And my beloved is that song, was the number one hit that Isaiah sung, and that number one hit was meant to do what? Cause them to repent. What are the number one, hint, number one hits designed to do today? Cause you to sin. Cause you to hate. <laughs> cause division. Right? That's what they're designed to do. To cause division between skin color. To cause division between political groups, to cause division between nations, sexes. That's what they do. Do you see how Satan has just corrupted something so beautiful? No, the origin of the number one hit is to cause us to repent and to come back as his people. And when you, when you realize that and you go back to the origins of a number one hit, you'll never listen to the, you know, I say the top 40 because when I was growing up in England with the BBC, you'd have Top of the Pops every Thursday night and you'd have the top 40 countdown. And then it used to be on Sunday. And I remember as a little boy, I would be right by the tape recorder and I'd put a cassette in and I'd listen to the top 40 because they would do the top 40 countdown over several hours. And I would, I would wait and, oh, that song, and I'd press record. And I'd make myself the perfect track tape, you know, when I was a little boy. And every Sunday, you know, and then I'd erase it and then I'd, you know, go do it again and again every Sunday. And I'd make myself my perfect top 40. That's how I grew up. And then on Thursday night, I'd walk, turn it on to BBC One and I'd watch, you know, Top of the Pops. And I grew up with that. And it led me into sin. Because it got worse and worse and more secular and more corrupt. I wasn't taught that what I was listening to was programming my mind, my thoughts, my very being. Sexual immorality, drugs, language, gangster rap, as it progressed, progressed, progressed. You know? Anyway, very important that we understand the backdrop and the true origin of how music was designed. Yahweh created music for repentance, for worship, and for honor and dignity. Honor and dignity. So my beloved, the subject of Yeshayahu's song, represents the number one hit. It represents Israel's Elohim in his truth, his true type, 
his true regard for Israel. Yahuwah plants the vineyard that represents his people in a choice land, on a fertile brow of the hill, verse 1. With his aid of his servants, the prophets, he then cultivates the land. He clears it of stones, meaning he removes the former wicked inhabitants, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jeb. He, he removes all the stones so carefully from the land and he prepares and cultivates it through his prophets. He cultivates it through the feasts, the Sabbaths, and of course, the way that he wants us to worship. He prepares the way. He prepares the way. And is that what Isaiah says later? Preparing the way, right? Preparing the way what? For a new planting. And if you get a bad harvest and bad a, a bad vineyard, what do you do? You cut it down, you uproot it, you throw it into the fire, you make sure now that you clear all the stones, everything that's bad, any wicked inhabitants, you get them out. You may even have to send them somewhere for 70 years so that you can have an opportunity to put a new wall around, put a new watchtower at, bring in new harvesters, prophets, and then put in a new planting. And then you can hope that that new planting will produce a harvest of good fruit. But then what happens if that planting produces a bat? Well, then you know what? We'll bring in Antiochus. And Antiochus will knock down the wall. He'll gather everybody up and we'll cut it down and burn it again. And then maybe, maybe, finally, you know what? I think I'm going to do something different because this is not working. I've done it once. I've done it twice. I've done it thrice. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my son. But to prepare the way for the next planting, I'm going to send my high priest. After the order of Levi. And he's going to establish the way for a new harvest. It's going to be a different harvest. It's going to be a different grape. It's going to be the blood of my son that is going to pour forth from this harvest, this venting. And it is going to taste good. Very good. It's going to be perfect without sin. So he sends in Yochanan Habit John the Immerser, who says the very words of the song, prepare ye the way, prepare ye the way of Isaiah, prepare the, the way of what? A new vineyard. It's going to be brand new. I'm going to be the last high priest of the, Mount, of the Levitical order. I'm going to transfer a new planting into the Malkitzedic priesthood. And this vintage is going to be perfect. And the blood that comes from this crushing will bring forth everything that the Father in heaven tried to get through the prophets that they failed. This is the gospel message. We're seeing it right here. 
but I'm ahead of myself. Because we get to see the whole picture, do we not? And we can look back, we can look forward. But this is an amazing thing. So with the aid of his servants, the prophets, he cultivates the land. He clears it of its stones, removes the former wicked inhabitants, and he prepares the way of the new planting. This is the key point. Just as Yahweh cultivates and clears the land, preparing the way for a new planting, using his servants, the prophets, in the New Testament, Yochanan HaMatbil, John the Baptist, cultivates and prepares the way for a new planting. The new planting is the new covenant. He builds a watchtower so his prophets, the watchmen, they can keep a vigil. They can keep a vigil. He hews a wine press, a temple service framework in which people can bring the fruit of their labors. But instead of bringing good fruit, they produce wild fruit, or what's called in the English translation, poison berries. The Hebrew word here is be-ushim. Be-ushim. It's spelt bet Aleph, Shin, Mem, Sofit. Be, Ushin, poison berries. Poison berries. The hedge in verse 5 is his divine protection. And that hedge will be removed and let it be burned, have its wall broken through, have its defenses violated, and let it be trampled. And all of these words, they link, of course, to the king of Assyria. Because he's going to come in and do this. Babylon. Yahuwah is allowing the king of Assyria, Babylon, to be the fire and sword who burns and tramples Yahuwah's reprobate people. Will Yahuwah allow mystery Babylon in our day to be Yahuwah's fire and sword to trample down his reprobate people? I see so many reprobates out there. In the guise of religion, reprobates. Verse 8, woe, woe, woe to them that join bait to bait, house to house, that add field to field until there is no room, and they be placed alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, Yahweh Savot said, of an emet, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate. Even the great and fine ones without inhabitant. Yes, ten acres of a vineyard shall yield one bath. And a, and a homer of zirah seed shall yield an epath. Now, you see right here the additional covenant curses are coming into effect. There's a lack of rain. There's a proliferation of briars, a, a proliferation of thorns. And this, of course, is a euphemism for the wicked that are overrunning the land. And the language is just dripping. And once the vineyard is no longer pruned or hoed, this means Yahweh has withdrawn his tender care. And the people are left to themselves. I want to be pruned. I want to be hoed. I don't want to be a hoe, but I want to be hoed. I want to be pruned. 
right? You see, you're so righteous, you didn't even laugh because my, my wicked sense of humor that's in the gutter sometimes, right? To the pure of heart, all things are pure. But you, you are in the back laughing, see? See, see, I can tell. I'm like, yeah, you walk down the roads I've walked down. Okay, okay. Oh, that one's a righteous, holy one. Okay, okay. All right, there's a reformed sinner. Oh, that one must have just grown up a Baptist and never been exposed to the wickedness and corruption. Because you can tell, you see. Okay, look, check out the audience there. Now, my children were laughing because they know who their father is. Well, they've heard stories, let me tell you. But I want Yahweh to prune us. I want that because that is how we grow. And sometimes it's, there's some pain. But we have to accept the pain because it is a way for us to grow. We have to accept the pain. If we are truly his, sometimes he'll cut us back a little bit. Maybe we get prideful. Maybe we get overconfident. Maybe we get too self-assured. Maybe we start to rely on our intelligence. These are things that I have over the years. And Yahweh has brought me back and, and pruned me and pruned me and given me a humbleness to be able to go, you know what? My logic and my reason and my thoughts, they fail me. And then what carries me? Faith. Do you believe? Do you believe when you think that something bad has happened to you that you don't deserve? Are you still going to believe? Okay. When you think that maybe, what was the term that you used last week? That Yahweh had done a, a, you don't remember, do you? We were talking about a friend of ours. No, you don't. I'm putting you on the spot. But you used a term last week, and it, it really struck me. He said something along the lines of Yahweh had um, done something, and it, it, you, could, you could go, oh, well, I didn't deserve that. That was a really bad thing. You remember we had that conversation? What was the phrase? Do you remember? You don't remember the phrase. But if you do, let me know, because that was good. That was a good one. See? But Yahweh, he anticipated, he anticipated with, with this vineyard, he anticipated fruits of righteousness. He anticipated fruits of justice because he was tender in his care. How tender is Yahweh in his care for us? I think about how tender Yahweh is in his care for me. I mean, I really do. I mean, I should have been cut down. I should have been burnt. I should have been discarded and thrown into hell. And if ever I rise up and I say, I don't deserve, I deserve to burn in hell. That's what, what I deserve. That I know. That I know. But because of his tender care and his mercy all these years, and I have stumbled, and I have fallen before you all, before my wife, before my children. And I see it with my family, how tender they are in caring for me. Because they know that my faith is genuine and that I am a flawed man. 
But at least that's something that we can work with. We've got to be honest and accept our past. I'm not trying to pretend to be somebody that I'm not. I have a past and it's wicked as hell. But it has framed me and Yahweh has allowed that past to be forgiven. But it is now able to teach people not to go that way but also to be able to be real, to connect with you. That we are on a journey together, together, to bring forth a harvest. And when you get pruned, we're going to come and support you. And some of you, I may bring the pruning shears, and if you don't repent, then I'm going to see if I can bring a couple more brothers with some bigger pruning shears and we're going to go to town with you. And if you still don't repent, then we're going to put you before all of the little grapes and we're going to start throwing grapes at you and then we're going to kick you out and we're going to hand you over to Satan because we're going to hope that you're going to bring forth a harvest. Don't hand grenade your bloody life. Don't hand grenade your life with sin. You have wives, families, children, beneficiaries. Don't hand grenade your life. And I'm not preaching at you because I have to be just as, my goodness, one decision. We are one decision away from destruction. So stay the course. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the road and broad is the gate that leads to destruction and the whole bloody world is on it. But narrow is the way and small is the gate that leads. And it, you know what? It's, it's, it's going to get smaller. And then you're going to keep on track. Oh, it's gonna, oh, this is tight. My goodness, this is hard. Man, I'm getting all pressed up on the side and shoulder. Oh, that's a goat. Oh, you kick them out. But you see what I'm saying? It does get harder. It does get harder. So now in verse 8. We now start to get into the woes, the woe series, or what's called the covenant curses that follow, of course, Yeshayahu's vineyard allegory. Now, it's very important that we re must, must realize how Yahuwah did dote over this vineyard. But this vineyard became a wasteland. So then we get into the woes, the woes, the woes. Very interesting, bait to bait and adding from field to field. What does this mean? They were adding house to house and field to field. This is almost like oppressive real estate ventures that box in or box out the tenant farmer. That's what was happening. Today, we have speculative real estate deals that over leverage. We've got foreclosures left, right, and center that are forcing the poor of his people out of the rural areas where you can be self-sustaining and have chickens and geese and all of these things, and then forces you into the cities where you are then dependent upon the benefits of the city, which is a municipality, and I can go down that road and I won't because I'm going to stay focused. But you want to 
to be self-sustaining. You don't want to be boxed in. You don't want to be living in little pods in a city where you are dependent upon a municipality. You are being boxed in. You are being boxed in from the creation where Yahweh can show you how to provide for your family food and harvest and bounty and free-flowing water that you're not getting jacked on, you know, and they can't just switch off, and self-sustaining electricity that they can't just switch off and put you in the dark for three months, because that's, of course, the plan. So right here, this is oppressive real estate ventures. It was going on back in the time of Isaiah the prophet, just as it is today. Verse 11, woe to them that rise up early in the morning, that they may pursue strong drink and continue until night, until their wine inflames them. And like I said, I've had a very colorful past, but I use that past to teach my children. For instance, we were in Missoula, Montana, and um, we had to, the boys and I got up early to go get coffee. Okay, because that is a vice that I do have, that I do enjoy. So we left my wife and the girls back at the house, and me and the boys, we got up early. It wasn't that early, but it was like 8, 8.30 or something. We decided to walk about a mile into town. Okay, and um, so we got our coffee, got our fancy espressos, and we, we, we're walking back, and I'm like, oh, here's a perfect, we're going to turn this into a game. Here's a perfect teaching moment. I said, check this out, fellas. I said, there was a bar, and it must have been eight, what, nine in the morning, do you think? About, would you say nine? Nine thirty? Eight thirty. And we walk past this bar, and we look in, and there's, you know, they're there, they're, you know, already. And I said, now, okay, let's just stop here for a minute, and we'll play a game. Here's the espresso shop, and here's the bar. Now, as the people come walking down the hill, let's guess which one they're going into. <laughs> and we were right every time. Donuts, whiskey, donuts, whiskey, coffee, vodka. You know, and this one broad, she, I mean, she came, oh, she came down, and I, I'm like, oh, she's definitely going to the bar. And then they did, off they walked in. So we use it as a teaching experience, because right here, woe to them that rise up in Missoula, Montana, before 10 o'clock in the morning, they're down the blooming bar. Good, and I said to my boys, I'm like, can you imagine the state of these people at two o'clock in the morning, starting that early? Can you imagine? Because they look as if they'd just come, gone home for about three or four hours, most probably, right? Timing. And then they have to hit it again, because otherwise they're going to get the DTs, right? I mean, some crazy, crazy life. Crazy life. But that is what happens with self-indulgent pleasure seekers, those that are given to debauch. Using an archaic English term there, debauch. Debauchery. Verse 12. And harp and lyre, the tambourine and the flute. And my wife's most probably at home now listening. She said, you did what with our sons? What kind of games were you playing? 
It's what happens when you go out on these nature walks in cities, you know. There's lots of games. And harp and lyre and tambourine and flute and wine are in their feasts. But they regard not the work of Yahuwah, neither consider the operation of his hands. Verse 13. Therefore my people are gone into exile because they have no knowledge. The Hebrew word there is da'at. And their honorable men are starved and their multitude dried up with thirst. Again, we've spent time on this before, but it's so, I love to bring it up. Da'at. It's spelled dalet ayin tav. And it is a covenant term, whereas the other Hebrew word to know is yada. It is yod, dalit, ayin. Yada. Those of you in the 90s that used to watch, you sinners that used to watch Seinfeld, you'd know that Elaine always used to go, yada, yada, yada. Meaning, I know, I know, I know. It, it, it's carnal knowledge. It's carnal knowledge, okay? It's carnal knowledge. Only, whereas da'at is a covenantal term. It's intimate, but not carnal. It's intimate as in soul to soul and commitment. It's intimate. So, breaking it down in covenantal terms, dalit ayin is as far as a term that you would see in Matthew chapter 7, 23, you see the Yod Dalit Ayin, Yada. Yada appears in the Hebrew of Matthew 7, 23. Those of you that have the Matthew Hebrew Shem Tov, okay? Or you can track it through the Greek back to the Septuagint and then translate it back into the Hebrew. And you'll find in Matthew 7:23 you find the alien of the covenant term, which is yada, which is carnal knowledge. And it is this. And when I profess to them, I never knew you, he uses the term I never knew you as far as da'at, intimate, meaning that you were known to me, yada, you knew me carnally. It was very surface. And that's what we see today. People that have a carnal knowledge of Jesus, right? Oh, yes, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, oh, I'm a believer. Oh, yes, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, I go to church. Oh, I love the Lord. And then you go, well, hang on. And then you see, and then you start talking about Torah, and the next thing you know is like, oh, my goodness, you guys. Well, what is That's very surface knowledge. It's very surface knowledge. Now, anyone that is born again, there is that da'at, yes, that intimate knowledge, because you've had a change. I'm not saying that. But then, if you go to a regular church, they're only going to teach you yada, surface carnal knowledge. Okay? It'll be always very surface. You won't get the intimate covenantal teachings, which are the ones that transform lives. So, this is very important for us, because if you claim, like so many do, 
If you claim Jesus and live like his law has no say over your life, then what? Then you're no different than the people of this vineyard. Because in this vineyard parable, these people, they did profess Yahweh, but they lived as if his law had no say over their lives. They did know Yahuwah. They did profess him, but they lived as if his Torah had no say over their lives. There's a whole slew of people, the majority, that would qualify for the people that are about to be uprooted because they're not in covenantal terms. They're saying, oh, yes, yes, I, I, I know the Lord. Oh, yes, I totally believe in the Lord. But no, his law is not um, going to guide me in how I live. And therefore, the fruits that they produce become bitter gall. This is the whole parable of the vineyard. Because what that does is it designates yourself as a covenant alien, and covenant aliens will not inherit the kingdom of Yahuwah. Which is why Paul, when he speaks to the Ephesians in chapter 12, he makes sure that he addresses those that were covenant aliens that have now been brought in. Because he's dealing in vineyard terms. Vineyard terms and a new opportunity to the Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14. Therefore, because of their bad fruits, Sheol, hell has enlarged itself and opened its mouth without measure. And their tithereth, their glory and their multitude and their pride. And he has unjust simcha joy shall descend into it isaiah likens yahuwah's people going to their death or to sheol the underworld hell or spirit prison like a gluttonous woman devouring them it's really quite grotesque when you look at the language imagine like a gluttonous woman just devouring and that's exactly how it's described here in the song. So the mouth serves as a pseudonym for the arch tyrant. Both Daniel and John depict him as a mouth speaking great things, pompous words, right? That mouth speaking pompous words, Daniel 7, 8, Revelation chapter 13, 5. Now Isaiah goes further on to describe him in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 29, as a beast bellowing and snorting against the Most High. In Isaiah 37, verse 23, it is written, whom have you reproached and reviled? And against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes in pride against the set-apart one of Israel? And today, what do we have? We have people bellowing and snorting all over social media, the most profane things against the Most High, with no consequence, it seems. Uh, it's, it's absolutely rampant within our society. But don't think that there won't be an uprooting and don't think that Yahweh won't use and allow mystery Babylon to be a flame and a fire to judge. Because he will. He'll, just as he allowed Babylon and the Assyrians to be his club, his sword, his firebrand, if you will, to judge. He will do that to judge.
Verse 15. And the mean-spirited man shall be brought down. And the mighty man shall be humbled. And the eyes of the proud shall be humbled. But Yahuwah Savot shall be exalted in Mishpat judgment. And the El, the Elohim that is Kadosh, shall be Kadosh, his Zedekah. He shall be holy, he shall be holy, he is righteous. Yahuwah's answer right here to their displacement. They have become so debased and his answer to their debasement is to restore justice, to restore righteousness for that very specific purpose. He sends to do that his son, the Zadik, the righteous, the person, his end time servant who will produce the finest vintage since the foundation of the world. We know from this side of history that Matthew chapter 21 testifies that the alienated people rejected his servant. The result will leave Yahuwah with no other choice but to burn it all down. Clear the field and start with a new harvest. And this is the backdrop to Romans chapter 11. And, and when people start in the Torah movement, start to doubt the Apostle Paul, they're insane. It's the most asinine thing when he is the most learned of all of the disciples of the covenantal terms. And the ones that want to kick out Paul, they're a bunch of Jewish wannabe, Levitical hierarchy, messianic mumbo-jumbo. Because the Apostle Paul, Rav Shaliak Sha'ol, is the most learned of the disciples when it comes to the covenantal terms. He was trained up under the school of Gamaliel. If you don't understand Paul, that's not his problem. That's your problem. That's your lack of understanding of the Hebrew and Greek texts of the scripture. Study to show yourself approved. The answer is not to kick out Paul. That is what an uneducated person that can't be bothered to work out the hard things of the gospel. We ought to dig further. You just can't kick out Galatians. You can't kick out because you'll end up with nothing because it's all interconnected. But you see people doing that because they don't. He says, Peter says that Paul's words are hard to understand. And people that are untrained and untaught in the scriptures, they twist them to their own destruction. And then they lead people down the garden path because if you kick out Paul, it's not going to be much longer before you kick out Yahushua. Yah forbid. Because then you have no remedy. No remedy. So we know that Matthew 21 testifies that the alienated people rejected his servant. And the result then leaves Yahuwah no choice but to burn it all down. And this is the backdrop of Romans 11. This, of course, is a just judgment. They had ample time, did they not, to produce good fruit. 
so many centuries, so much opportunity to produce good fruit, but they refuse to bear forth that good fruit. And then in verse 17, Then when shall the lambs feed after their pasture, and the waste places of the fat ones shall foreigners eat? Woe to them that draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, and sin as it were the wagon ropes, that say, Let him hurry and hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Kadosh one of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. This is a woe warning to the last generation, not to be drawn into sin by vain attachments. It could be music. It could be the contracts that you're not managing. We must be aware of those ropes that would draw us into mystery Babylon, that would draw us into sin, because these are the tentacles that Satan is laying out there through adhesion contracts, through music, through social media. These are the tentacles that would try and draw you in the ropes of iniquity and the cords of falsehood. So you have to cut the ties. Sometimes you have to move geographically. You've got to cut the ties with the old neighborhood that you used to grow up in. Sometimes you have to cut the ties of the friends that you associate with. Sometimes you have to cut the ties of the things you're putting in your body. Sometimes you have to cut the ties to the things you've seen with your eyes and your ears. You've got to sever the ties because these are the drawing cords of iniquity and falsehood that must be severed in our lives. Habits. Behaviors. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Job says, Can an unclean thing come out of a clean? No. No. So therefore, your interpretation of Acts chapter 10 most probably is wrong. So go back and study to show yourself approved. And I've got a hint for you. You could go back to Leviticus chapter 11 and it'll tell you all right there and set you up for success. Just so you know, there's your foundation. Let's start with the foundation. This is called the dumbing down of America and the dumbing down of the Christian faith. People don't read. They give you an interpretation of clean and unclean from Acts chapter 10. But the interpretation is in Leviticus 11. There's your foundation, and you build upon that. Job tells you that you can't bring a clean out of an unclean, and you, you just it, it's never been that way. So it's impossible that your interpretation of Acts chapter 10 could be correct. That's got to be dogma and doctrine and the dumbing down of society. And now you're saying something evil is good. Because last time I checked, Yahushua's blood did not clean pigs. It cleaned Cornelius. It cleaned men. 
It cleaned us. It's absolutely wild what's happened with the faith and what people accept as truth. The truth is the Torah and the truth is the Son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Moses spoke of me and his words testify to me just as Daniel the prophet's words do. Don't listen to anybody other's words. When you've got Moses and the prophets, they weren't telling you to chow down on a porker. So then why would you? Because your pastor does? Because your church has said it since the Council of Nicaea? It's not in the Bible. And if you think it is, it's because you haven't got a solid foundation in the Torah. And you have to build upon that. Woe to them who, woe to those, excuse me, where am I? I'm verse 22. Thank you. Woe to them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength who mix strong drink. Watch out for the whiskey. That's why all those country songs are full of women and whiskey and heartbreak. I'm serious. They don't call it spirits for nothing. I mean, I've come afoul of it. I've come afoul of it. I certainly left some scars, okay? I'm just being honest. The word here is shikar, whiskey. Let's just be real, okay? This is whiskey. This is shikar. And the word yayin is wine. It's a form of word link that the opulent people had become overcome and stumbling in delusion. Shikar and yayin. Shikar and yayin. Whiskey and wine. You never want to mix whiskey and wine here. I'm just uh, <laughs> telling you, okay? Priests and prophets, too, have gone astray through liquor. They err as seers, and they become blunders of delusions. Isaiah 28, verse 7, it says this. But they have erred through wine, and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They have swallowed up wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. Okay, this is a stern warning, a stern warning. Verse 23, woe to who justify the wicked with a bribe and take away the zadokah, the righteous, from him. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness and their blossoms shall go up as dust because they have cast away the Torah of Yahweh Sivot and despised the word of the Kadosh one of Israel. So this chapter now, we're drawing into the conclusion. It concludes with the chaos motifs like stubble and weeds and decay and dust, which really contrast with the wicked ones of Yahweh, the people 
people, with the righteous who represent the grain, the roots and the blossoms. So you've got grain, roots, blossoms, fertile, and then you've got stubble, weeds, decay and dust. You see, this is really showing the distinction in our the way that our ancestors chose to live, just as we see in society today. Because with stubble, weeds, decay and dust, you have no true ancestors left because it's all burnt up. Yet, with grain, roots and blossoms, this signifies ancestors, beneficiaries, things that can be passed down from generation to generation because evildoers always will be cut off from these blessings of familial rights, which is why they are trying to destroy the family through music and all of the things that I've spoken about today because the familial blessings come back to the harvest, come back to the song, come back to the very beginning of this chapter. But Yahweh will use his flame and fire to burn them up. Verse 25, Therefore is the anger of Yahuwah lit against his people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them, and he has smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and the corpses were torn in the midst of his streets. See, I actually have scars in my life, not, not just my DNA scars, but I remember the first time that I decided, when I was stupid enough, and I think I was about 11, um, my mum let me go to the, the cinema, okay? And I was on the second floor, because that's because you could throw popcorn and stuff down on the people below. So, of course, I was right up there. And that was the first time I had the brilliant idea to smoke a cigarette, okay? Because you used to be able to smoke in the cinemas back then. And I had a, pe a packet of Swan Vestas. Now, Swan Vestas, you can look them, they are not safety matches. And it was back in the 80s, and I just bought, you know, I was going out, it was, you know, I think it was a Friday night, and I had a white parachute top on, okay, my brand new white parachute top. And I thought, well, yeah, I have a cigarette, you know. Maybe I was a little bit older than 11, maybe I was 13. First experience with a cigarette. Took the Swan Vesta, lit it, flew out of my hand, flew down my top, I've got a burn mark, on my chest, my lower neck, still to this day. And did that, that, did that prevent me? No, I still continued. See, I, I look back on those things. I think these were all his mercy and his grace trying to keep me from the way of destruction. But let me make my own choices. And what happened to me? A fire and a flame burnt up my life. For a good decade, from such an inception point of sin. And it's still scarred to this day, not just physically, behaviorally, emotionally. Don't do it. Take it from me. Don't do it. Be better than your father, children. Be better. Take it from me. Take it from me. It's pretty amazing that I even have, that he even allows me to stand up here and be able to teach without being struck down.
praise Yahuwah. Therefore, verse 25, his anger, the anger of Yahuwah, lit against his people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them and has smitten them. And, the, and I did ruin my parachute top too. That was the oh, I, mean, I didn't care about my skin. I burnt the neck of my parachute top. The whole thing could have gone up. I could have gone up in flames just like that. It was brand new. Everybody laughed at me. It's very embarrassing. But that didn't stop me from going down that path of sin and destruction, did it? What a fool. Therefore the anger of Yahuwah lit against his people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them, and he has smitten them. And the hills did tremble, and their corpses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this anger has not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now, it's interesting, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, it says, O Assyrian, context, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. So he, Yah was telling you, the Assyrian, I'm going to use the Assyrian to whip your... The Assyrian personifies Yahweh's anger and acts as his hand of punishment. Verse 26. And he will lift up the banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the ends of the earth. And see, they shall come and speed swiftly. You see, today we fail to comprehend the origin, origin excuse me, and meaning of flags. Okay? We have all these half-wits everywhere flying flags to BLM and to Ukraine. They don't even know where blooming Ukraine is. They're not going to go on holiday. Uh, they've got nothing to do with Ukraine. They never have. But now all of a sudden they're flying flags. They don't even know why. And they're flying rainbow flags and they're flying this pirate flag here. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're flying all of these... The Hebrew word here is, is, is nasas or nosas, and it is meaning to gleam from afar, a conspicuous signal to raise a beacon, to lift an ensign. It's a standard bearer. It has ramifications. You better be careful what you fly, what banner you fly, because it has ramifications to the Most High. People don't realize that. If you've ever been to the Middle East, you'll know that. You better be careful what colors you wear. And if you ever out on a Saturday in London, you better be careful what colors you wear. I remember being a young boy and getting on the tube and I was trying to get the last train home and I ran onto the tube and I had my football kit on of my team, a West London team, and I ran onto the tube and I got in and I realized I was on a, a carriage full of the opposite side supporters. And I'm like, oh, I'm dead meat. They're going to pile into me. So I, oh, yes. I got off at the next stop. So you better watch out what colors you fly, especially when it comes to banners. You think you can raise all these flags with no consequence? 
Oh, you, there's consequences, if not in this life, in the next life. Because it's a serious thing. It's an ensign. It's a banner. It's a signal. You are showing what your standard is. And if your standard is supporting Ukraine, then you're supporting money laundering and tyranny and slavery and oppression. Not only of the people over there, of the people in this country. Because it's a money laundering outfit. Just cycles through. Cycles through. Don't get me started on money. There is no money. Anyway, stay on track, stay on track. See, I've always got to watch me. Verse 27. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the belt of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their sandals be broken. Look at the language. Are you catching the John the Baptist language here? Because he's about to plant the new vintage, the new vineyard. He borrows the language from the very prophecy in Isaiah chapter 5 to communicate to his hearers in the book of John that we see, hey, this is the new opportunity for a new vintage. It's going to be rough for a little bit because we're going to have to clear out the stones. You know, these, the synagogue of Satan, we're going to have to clear out those stones. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of those little male feasans, we're going to have to clear out those stones. And guess what? We're going to burn this place down. We're going to bring the Romans in and they're going to smoke this place and burn it down. But you know what? Hey, look, I'm using the very language to show you what's going to happen here. We're finally going to get to some good wine. The wine of Simcha, of everlasting joy. I mean, this is some powerful stuff. He's borrowing language from this very, very song. And people read the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, and they can't make the connections. Neither shall the belt of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their sandals be broken. The one that wore the belt of the prophets, that said the very language of the sandals being loosed and broken, whose arrows are sharp and all his bows bent, with their horse's hoofs shall seem like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like young lions. They shall roar and lay hold of the prey, and they shall carry it away safely, and none shall rescue it. And in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, see darkness, and then sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds over it. <sighs> Isaiah likens him to the sea in commotion or a river like in a flood sweeping all before it. In, and you see this in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 7 and you see it in Isaiah chapter 51 verse 5 as well. You see this commotion just like a, a imagine just like this river just tearing everything up and bringing everything in and, or where the sea and the river converge and it designates the chaos in the world. I'll read these two verses from you, for you. 
chapter 8, verse 7, it says, And therefore, behold, Yahuwah brings on them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria. And all of his glory, he shall come up over his channels and go over all his banks. Meaning the king of Assyria is going to burst in and he is going to wash out that vineyard. Just that simple. Just a total washout. Yahweh will allow, listen, Yahweh will allow chaos to encroach upon your borders, to burst your banks and to flood your plain. He will. He will. And then what do you do? You accept the chaos. Is it better to build a wall to try and prevent it? Or is it better to allow the water to flow through? It's better to build a house on stilts and allow the water to flow through. You accept that it will come and allow it to flow through and it's discharged. Or you can try and fortify but you can't fortify enough against some kinds of chaos. And sometimes you cannot fortify enough against some kinds of evil, wicked people. You have to accept and allow it to take its time and its course and flow through you. And Yahweh will give you the remedy. You don't fight it. You accept it. Chapter 51, verse 5, it is written, My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms shall judge peoples. The coastlands shall wait on me, and on my arm they shall trust. Moshiach, Yahuwah's arm, Yahusha is Yahuwah's arm, is the one that comes to restore peace. Yahusha walks upon the water. He calms the chaos in the world. He calms the chaos in our lives and he brings the remedy. So now, because he's my master and he's my king, I bump into evil, wicked people. And I bump into good, holy people. I walk in times of peace and sometimes I come across chaos and chaos may seem to pursue me at times but what do I do I stand and I see the glory of Yahweh in my life and I speak order to the chaos and the chaos splits and I'm able to walk through as on dry land this is how Yahweh has shown me to live I embrace the chaos Speak order to it, it splits, and a way is made for me to walk through as on dry land, and I'm not touched. And there's a roaring and spittle and roaring and bellowing, and you've got to master the fear because it's not going to come upon you. Oh, but it is. Oh, no, it's coming. The walls are crashing. I'm going to turn back. Oh, that's fear. No. You speak order to the chaos. It splits and you go through as on dry land when you accept the chaos. You cannot fight it. You fight, you lose.
You bring order into chaos because we have been shown how to walk on water. Because we are the ones drinking the blood of the Lamb. Eat my flesh and drink my blood and you shall be able to live as I lived. A righteous, holy life in a sick and twisted world. This is the vineyard parable and it is Yasum, is it not? Baruch Hashem Yahweh, I have kept you long enough. Shabbat Shalom. Give us some thumbs up if you're still here. Put some comments down in the comments section. And we'll look forward to seeing you next Shabbat. Keep it Kadosh. Keep it holy. Don't mix the whiskey and the wine. And stay sober, holy, and kosher.